Thank you very much for this kind introduction. It is a great pleasure indeed to be back again in Oxford and to have the opportunity of discussing some of my recent work on neo-nationalism as it has continued on a smaller scale since Marcus Banks and I co-edited that 2006 book Elizabeth has just referred to. So, yes, the talk will be on in-migration, indigeneity and imagination, or class community and crisis in Europe. Let me start my presentation with an example that um, refers to certain small posters and stickers that became quite popular for some time in Austria a few years ago. During the middle of the past decade, those posters and stickers were disseminated in huge quantities all over Austria and often featured prominently for a few days at least, because they were posted illegally, in public space such as bus or metro stations, school corridors and similar arenas. Typically, those posters showed the drawing of the profile of a Native American with his large feather crown in red colors and nothing else but a few lines below that head in profile. The German sentences below the drawing said, they failed to prevent in-migration now they have to live on reservations in their own home country. That's all. The message is clear and need not be spelled out any further. If you don't fight in migration now, you will end up being a minority in your own country tomorrow, just like the Native Americans. The message not only is clear, it also is tremendously appealing in countries like Austria, Switzerland, Germany, the Czech Republic, Hungary for that matter, in all those parts of Central Europe where romantic images of Native Americans have occupied an extremely prominent place in regional variants of youth culture, of popular culture, in general throughout many, many decades, actually since the beginning of the 20th century. Youth culture and popular culture with the Native American center stage comprised, of course, films, travel reports, a wide range of books, political propaganda, the Nazis, uh, plays Tecumseh as a hero who fought heroically against Jewish plutocratism and uh, British imperialism. Uh, and uh, perhaps most importantly, male summer festivals where men dress up in summer camps and get together uh, and fight against white cowboys. Although the role of romantic images of Native Americans today is less influential than it was uh, when I was a boy, it continues to be very powerful indeed in Central Europe. 
The Native American chief's image on those anti-immigration posters thus provides a seemingly effortless, playful, some would even say clever, but certainly very effective, effective channel of strong emotional identification to most bypasses. I shall come back to these uh, emotional dimensions of identifying with notions of indigeneity in a minute, but after having introduced you now to a key propaganda tool by the new right and the new neo-nationalist movements in Central Europe, let me briefly continue with an overview of my general argument in this presentation. My first section will discuss the cases of Switzerland and Austria as comparative examples in Central Europe, where populist and neo-nationalist movements from the far right have again returned to influential pol political positions at the end of the 21st century's first decade, and how they managed to achieve this. My second section, then, will focus on some of the new tools and methods they successfully applied in this process, which will lead us to a second and more detailed discussion of the Native American chief's image on that poster and of the local roles of notions of indigeneity in these processes in general. In my last section, I shall then offer some conclusions to the purpose of strengthening anthropology's conceptual and analytical relevance in these academic and public debates. I should add that my argument will continue and further elaborate some of the main points jointly proposed with Marcus Banks in the 2006 volume on neo-nationalism without repeating what we uh, have said there. And I should also add that my presentation today is built on recent observations and short uh, spans of field work, but primarily it is also based on uh, works that some of my MA and PhD students have uh, carried out in the field. So first let me turn to the comparative dimension of a reinvigorated neo-nationalism in Switzerland and Austria. In 2010, Heinz Christian Strache's Freedom Party in Austria and Christoph Blocher's SVP in Switzerland each held close to 25 to 30% of voters' support in their respective countries, thereby ranking among the most influential groups from the far right anywhere in Europe. In the two major cities of Zurich and Vienna, they even hold uh, much more than 30%, up to a third of the overall electorate. So while other groups of a comparable orientation have emerged elsewhere more recently, such as the uh, extremist right-wing group Jobbik in Hungary or the seemingly less radical neo-nationalist parties in the Netherlands and in the Flemish parts of Belgium, it is certainly relevant for a European assessment to understand how these two highly successful Swiss and Austrian forces have managed to overcome their setbacks, which they went through some five to seven years ago, and to become influential again. In addition, this comparison also might be interesting from a European 
as much as from a particularly British perspective, because by contrast to the wider European environment, both countries share a number of striking similarities, apart from being located in the Alpine mountains, speaking some strange forms of German, and apart from having co-hosted the 2008 European Football Championship together. They're both very small in size and in population. Both are neutral from uh, any military alliance, like Sweden and Ireland, in fact. And both, which I think is most important, are fairly affluent. Affluent in any dimension you, you want to, to apply and, and to assess. Uh, but if I just take the example of nearby Serbia, the average income of, a, of an upper-middle-class family from Serbia is less than what an unemployed person in Austria receives as a state uh, funding. By whatever way, therefore, affluence is qualified and quantified and assessed, Switzerland and Austria rank among the world's top ten by general income standards. And in 2009, they also ranked among Europe's top five with regard to very low unemployment rates. These are some of the factors we took into account when Marcus and I suggested that in European contexts, the specific combination of being relatively small and of being fairly affluent seemed to provide particularly fertile contexts for the emergence of distinct neo-nationalist parties contexts in which what I called cultural pessimism and economic chauvinism may thrive in a more self-understood and in a more aggressive manner than elsewhere. Now, if we contrast these two countries and their two neo-nationalist parties against each other, their differences by necessity become more conspicuous. In Switzerland, Bloch's SVP has been part of the federal government coalition throughout the past decade because this is how the Swiss constitution habitually is interpreted. Any party that is strong enough to be represented in parliament <coughs> also has to be included in the government coalition. This constitutional practice has upgraded the SVP and has minimized its setbacks, which they still had. These setbacks included, for instance, a number of breakaway movements by party delegates, several legal and financial scandals, and at one point even Bloch's personal removal from office as federal minister. It is one important point, I think, uh, when we analyze neo-nationalist movements in Europe, that by definition they go through very fast uh, ups and downs, and that in turn has to do with the fragile and uh, uh, mobile social basis on which they are built. Yet that party, the SVP, nevertheless managed to come back and even to expend its inf influence through a number of populist campaigns, among which the anti-minaret plebiscite in 2009 was essential. That plebiscite is to an extent part of a wider European development that includes, among others, the recent French decision to declare 
wearing the hijab in public as illegal. But at the same time, the plebiscite was unique in its radical reassertion <coughs> excuse me, of a native landscape that has to be protected from such exceptional buildings as a minaret, allegedly, of the indigenous profile of local architecture and territory, and of the populist decision to stigmatize any deviation from that as alien, foreign, and therefore as unwanted. It is noteworthy that in the course of this plebiscite, Bloch's SVP, which so far had their almost exclusive support bases in the German-speaking parts of Switzerland, managed for the first time to gain considerable uh, new following in the French-speaking parts of the country. And in a way, they thereby transformed themselves to an extent from ethnic nationalists that were quite similar to the Flemish separatists to federal nationalists with a relatively strong power basis now also outside the German-speaking parts of Switzerland. Meanwhile, in Austria, the Freedom Party, for a while, had broken apart into two different movements, one of which became a radical opposition party, while the more moderate part, under Jörg Haider, whose name you might know or remember, remained in government until it was voted out from there in 2006. Jörg Haider's party then remained only influential in the Austrian federal state of Carinthia, where he was a governor until driving himself into a dramatic DUI death that fascinated not only the rainbow press. Until this day, tens of thousands of Corinthians have transformed the location of that much-discussed car accident into a pilgrimage site of the 21st century, thereby again reasserting local roots. Flowers and candles that remind uh, of Princess Diane's uh, commemoration sites and perhaps are inspired from there, commemorate the man, a nearby museum in his honor adds some spice also by being installed in a former Nazi forced labor mine uh, whenever uh, some uh, memory of Haider comes up his images appear on posters in the whole state of Carinthia. Uh, the video and that's perhaps an interesting footnote to the whole story of how he passed his last uh, few hours before he drove himself into that dramatic death are telling insofar as uh, they show how he met one of his male lovers in a gay bar in Klagenfurt, the capital of Carinthia, and really uh, drove, uh, drank very rapidly one, one bottle of schnapps after the other. Um, uh, the interesting side in that is that uh, the, the more liberal and more tolerant parts of Austrian society always knew about uh, Haider's bisexuality and found that the one aspect of his person that was not really worth discussing, uh, apart from all his political uh, bad sides, whereas the, his supporters 
uh, didn't want to know about that and therefore refused to even take notice of it. So the whole country, in a strange way, has remained silent about the actual circumstances of, that preceded his death after this meeting uh, where he uh, drank so many bottles of schnapps, he then drove to his, ninth, to his mother's 90th birthday and, and didn't make it. In a way, Haider's Hollywoodian exit, which uh, really would deserve a paper of its own, then opened up the way for the more recent reconciliation between the regional Corinthian Party and the federal populist element under the Reunited Freedom Party's present shooting star, Strache. He has managed to lead the Freedom Party even beyond its earlier range of influence while still being in a position um, in opposition to the government. Main elements in this success story number two were, in addition to Strache's vow to uphold Haider's legacy, uh, without the, the erotic side of it, uh, his new infatuation with decent Serbian immigrants who, in his words, suffer from a Muslim aggression that is threatening all of us, a reinvigorated uh, uh, campaign against cosmopolitan banks that are allegedly the only ones guilty of destroying our national capital, which rephrased in an interesting way the Nazi distinction between stealing and investing capital, or Jewish and German capital. And last but not least, those posters with the Native American chief. All, all of these elements uh, helped to uh, make these groups strong again. So this brings me to my second section, which uh, discusses icons of identification. Our brief comparison of neo-nationalism's recent uh, forms of reinvigoration in Switzerland and Austria suggests that in both cases, neo-nationalists, uh, for the time being, have managed to work themselves through their unavoidable and, as I've said, necessary ups and downs without crashing first, and second, that icons and notions of identifying with indigeneity represented one important among several crucial factors in order to get there. But these ups and downs continue to be necessary and unavoidable because neo-nationalist parties are relatively new and they have to strive more aggressively to break into mainstream parties' core spheres of influence in order to win over new support from there. This accounts for their permanent campaigning with sometimes even ethnographic elements in the campaigning. This story has happened in this or that way over there, and we can learn that and that from it in the course of which they constantly have to hammer and forge the kind of new class alliances they seek to establish. These class alliances are young and fragile, which is why they need programmatic orientation and emotional glue. And I'm going to talk about emotional glue a bit more uh, in a minute. Programmatic orientation is being provided by neo-nationalism's tripartite hierarchical ideology, 
We are the redefined nation in the center that may or may not include decent Serbian, Viennese, or reasonable French speakers from Geneva. We have threatening forces above us, Brussels, bureaucrats, cosmopolitan banks, Washingtonian politicians, preferably if they have a non-white color as well, as other forces that are below us, African drug dealers, Russian pimps, and most importantly, Muslim aggressors of all sorts. Yet as necessary as that tripartite programmatic orientation in fact is, it is not sufficient enough to mobilize. Mobilization requires campaigning, heated debates, hate speech, uh, setting the agenda for these polarizing debates in a manner that creates emotion, elicits emotion, enhances it, and uh, maintains uh, emotional uh, feelings of all sorts. This is where icons of identification come in uh, and provide the necessary glue to forge alliances across class boundaries in ways that emotionalize enough to cross these social boundaries in order to identify with shared symbols of alleged national uh, threats or national interests ways that make the yuppie from the Vienna Stock Exchange feel as belonging to one group together with the unemployed young worker from the Vienna suburbs and uh, with the rural uh, in country in uh, owner. This is how I believe uh, one should and can identify the precise constellations in which notions of indigeneity then may become effectively activated for neo-nationalists and, and for their racist purposes. Forging new cross-cutting class alliances by mobilizing against alleged and real threats to uh, a redefined nation under siege, therefore, is crucial. And that kind of mobilization requires an inventory of effective symbols that work as icons of identification and that reach out beyond the immediate moment of the here and now, uh, as in the case of the Native American and his profile. Symbols that also appeal to sentiments of childhood, sen uh, sentiments that also are related to broad romantic feelings that have actually nothing to do with current politics. It seems that inside the global networks of extreme rightist activism, several of these topics and symbols already had been tried out in various contexts for quite some time already. I'm really not um, um, somebody who who's, can be easily seduced by conspiracy theories, but in both cases it does seem remarkable that the minaret topic as well as the Native American Indian topic had been tossed around, discussed and tried out among extreme rightist circles for more than a decade before they actually uh, were put into practice. For instance, initiatives 
uh, to pass laws against minarets for the purpose of what was called the protection of national cultural heritage already were launched throughout the 1990s and the 1980s, both in Austria and in northern Italy and in Switzerland. And they did not work very well until they were brought to perfection. Although they failed at first, their uh, shameless usage, together with the UNESCO uh, Charter on the protection of cultural heritage of, and of intangible uh, material cultural uh, resources, in the end uh, worked, as the Swiss case uh, from 2008 shows. In a comparable attempt to exploit a just cause for unjust goals, a South African Boers Africana delegation at one point during the late 1990s demanded that the Boers should be officially recognized and included as an endangered indigenous minority during the negotiations about the United Nations Charter on Indigenous Rights. And they worked very hard to actually become part of the negotiation process, which did lead, uh, in the end, to the UN Charter on Indigenous Rights. In itself, that uh, effort went very far and failed. But again, the episode from the 1990s may uh, uh, look exotic and bizarre only if we take it as an isolated instance, but not as one element and one step in a long process of professionalizing uh, those tools of propaganda that then became uh, more effective during the past few years. So one has to also look at these uh, elements in the processual context of recent history in order to see that uh, uh, these are wider, also global networks that help to perfect uh, the icons we are discussing here. So what I want to point out uh, in context with these icons is that several of these uh, notions and symbols of indigeneity do not reach today's public out of the blue, but on the contrary, they have been tried out again and again, and their uh, right-wing activists know very well what they are doing. The minaret as an icon of threat and the Native American as an icon of the threatened both address the nation under siege. Let me now come to my conclusions and my concluding thoughts, uh, which will focus a bit uh, stronger on uh, the relevance all of this has uh, for anthropology, or might have for anthropology, and for anthropology's special role in these new encounters with and debates on indigeneity and nationhood. I've tried to show that in Central Europe these references are part of neo-nationalism's wider inventory of the recent years. Uh, inventories that have accompanied these movements return to in the influential positions of popular support which they have. On the symbolic and emotional level, these are icons of identification that provide some of the glue that is necessary to forge new class alliances and to create the new sense of national communities under siege 
that these movements seek to elicit. It seems uh, to be no coincidence that indigeneity re-emerges as a potential icon of identification precisely under conditions of economic crisis and of advanced accelerated globalization. One common denominator in these various local and regional forms may well be the quasi-religious promise of salvation salvation by retreating into a defensive kind of indigeneity that is offered as a treacherous remedy against the perceived threats of globalization. And if that thesis is true, then neo-nationalism in fact is just uh, one factor within increasing uh, numbers of examples for politics and ideologies of emotion politics and ideologies of emotion that actually work more with uh, emotionalizing people rather than with uh, presenting rational uh, alternatives for uh, individual consideration and choice. Mobilizing across classes by means of ideologies uh, of identification and of mass emotions. I do not deny that in any uh, civil society, uh, its public life, which is built on free elections, you need some uh, emotions in any, in any public campaign. So a minimum of emotionalizing politics is, uh, I think, unavoidable and necessary. But uh, this kind of uh, priority, priority for emotion uh, and emotional politics is something different because it precisely works against uh, rational uh, uh, decision-making and uh, public reasoning on the best uh, available solution. Uh, so I think there is a fine uh, difference here that we have to observe when we discuss this type of uh, politics of emotion. In practice, this is, of course, not a new phenomenon insofar as religions and political ideologies often were capable of achieving some kind of emotionalizing coherence for specific or also for medium-term purposes. What is new today, however, is that uh, we are here dealing with fairly simplistic ideologies that managed to mobilize across relatively long time spans on the basis of metropolitan, anonymous uh, uh, media-inspired mass societies. This is why I suggest to consider notions like glue that I have used here in this presentation as an explorative conceptual device to further investigate these forms of emotionalized social cohesion. At the last EASA meeting in Maynooth Ireland, Paul Richards gave an interesting talk in which he discussed some of the late work of his former teacher, Mary Douglas, and some of the loose ends he thinks she has left behind in her own work. One among these open ends discussed by Paul Richards concerned mass enthusiasm and mass euphoria. And if I understood him correctly, Richard suggested to use insights from neuroscience as an explanatory device. 
According to him, they show why and how people simply do not think, as he said, under certain, certain circumstances and cannot think in certain situations, but rather react in an emotional way and begin to let themselves be carried away then by emotions very quickly. That may well be the case, as Richard dis Richards described it. Still, I would warn against embracing neuroscience at too early a stage in the way he suggested it. The emotional glue, after all, is socially produced and evoked, as I've tried also to show here. It seems, what is perhaps more important, it seems to be comprised of very different emotional ingredients as I've tried out to show in some of my fieldwork, ranging from frustration and despair to anger and to fury, and from admiration and fascination through fan cult and hope on to desire. Eliciting and enhancing these various emotions into one emotional flow that then can be instrumentalized for political purposes concerns processes whose identification and analysis cannot be left to neuroscience alone or for that matter to the cognitive sciences alone. I believe anthropology, sociocultural anthropology has to play a part in analyzing these dimensions as well. And in addition, we might benefit in these matters from entering into dialogue and cooperation with other important fields in the social sciences who are engaging with related topics such as social psychology, which is equally if not more important as a resourceful academic field with some considerable competence in these matters. In a movement that emerged from my intellectual dialogues with Anna Tsing's notion of friction which is itself a metaphor from physics, of course, I have thus arrived at conceptualizing glue as a simplistic ideological force in uh, anonymous mass societies that works in some instances but doesn't in others. Comprised of very different ingredients, glue is capable of emotionalizing people across distinctions of class and region and beyond the immediacy of a given situation or condition in time. My suggestion is that anthropologists in these matters uh, should give more consideration uh, within debates of an anthropology of the senses and of emotions uh, in order to enter into dialogue with other social sciences such as social psychology to explore the analytical value of conceptual tools like glue. This could help to maintain and to strengthen a reasonable middle course between the more radical extremes such as the poetics of interpretivism on the one side and the experiments of neuroscience on the other. Thank you for your attention.